following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. We're talking about the resurrection because we're at that point in the Gospel of John and we've been tracking through this Gospel over the course, a uh, large part of the year and last week we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, so we had Good Friday last Sunday and then this morning we're talking about the resurrection. So we've got Easter Sunday this morning on the 2nd of November. So this is all going to feel a bit strange. And then in the next few weeks... Uh, we'll be working out the rest of the Gospel of John and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and then we go into Advent. So it's all going to feel completely backward. We go from the death of Jesus to the resurrection to the birth of Jesus. But that's just going to be how it works, and we'll embrace the chaos of it. So we're uh, talking on the resurrection of Jesus this morning, and uh, I know that over the past little while, since a group of us went to Israel in, at the middle of the year, I've been sharing bits and pieces about that trip. Just, you know, I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to boast, I don't want to be skitey. So I've just, you know, sprinkled in a few little stories, a few little bits and pieces there. I hope it's not too much. And I hope you can indulge me one more today because it is helpful, I think, to get a bit of a perspective of where some of these things in the Bible took place. And these are, these are sites that people actually visit today and, uh, and you can go to, some more reliable than others as accurate sites of where things happen. But when we were over there uh, in, in Israel, we visited this place just outside Jerusalem called the Garden Tomb. And this is a site, it's a complex run by Christians, and it's a place where people come to remember the resurrection of Jesus. You can kind of get a perspective of where Jesus might have died. And there's a tomb there, cut into the rock, which is maybe about the size that Jesus' tomb might have been. You get a bit of a perspective of what his resurrection might have been like in the tomb that he was buried in there. And uh, we were visiting this, this garden, this lovely manicured garden, and there's places to sit there and reflect and so on. And I, I said to Mark, our tour guide, is there any real historical validity in this place as the site of the resurrection of Jesus? And his answer was this. He said, I like to come here for the flowers. So I think that's an archaeologist's way of saying no, not really. We don't really know that that's geographically where Jesus was resurrected. We don't no. I mean, it might have been near there. It was near where he was crucified. It was near the city somewhere, but, but nobody knows for sure. But the nice thing about this garden tomb complex is that it is a garden. It's a lovely place to reflect. It's easy in that space to connect with Jesus and the reality of his resurrection. And it really, that place, I think, takes you into this story that John read, particularly John's telling not John Davies, but John the Gospel writer, his telling of the story. Because John is the only author of the Gospel writers who makes a point of telling us that Jesus was resurrected in a garden, that Jesus' tomb was in a garden. The other Gospel writers don't mention that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't, they don't tell us that. Only John highlights this idea that Jesus was buried in a garden. And when one Gospel writer tells you something that the other three don't, it's probably important. It's worth paying attention to, and I think it is in this case. I think there's significance to the fact that Jesus was buried and raised in a garden. When you step back from that, when you step back from this particular scene, and you look at the image of a garden in the whole biblical story, it's fair to say that some of the most significant things that happen in the Bible happen in gardens. 
It's not a stretch, I think, to say that some of the points in the whole biblical story that really move the action forward, where the plot really turns, are located in gardens. And what I want to do this morning is a little bit different. We will focus on this passage in John 20, the resurrection in the garden tomb. I want to come back to that. What I want to do is tell you the whole biblical story through the framework of four gardens. I want to visit with you four gardens in the Bible, significant gardens where significant things happen. The garden tomb is one of them where Jesus was raised from the dead, but it's not the only one. And these gardens give us a sense of the whole redemptive sweep of God's work with humanity and creation and help us place the resurrection in a much bigger story. So the first garden is probably pretty guessable. Right? I mean, if, you, if, if John's hearers start hearing about a garden, Jesus is raised from a garden. A garden is the place of new life. A garden is a place of new beginnings. They are going to start thinking about another garden, a very significant garden that occurs very early in the biblical story. What, what are they thinking of? Garden of Eden, it's got to be, right? I mean, that is, for Jewish readers, hearers, that's the garden, that's where it all started. So there's an association there. And I want to read you just one verse, you don't need to turn there, but let me just read you a verse way back in Genesis chapter 2 that describes life in the first garden, describes what things were like. This is, you could call this the first commission. All right? You know the great commission in Matthew 28, this is the first commission that God gave to human beings when he created them and placed them in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Often when you picture the Garden of Eden, we tend tend to picture this very idyllic scene. There's Adam and Eve there. There's all these animals. They're just kind of frolicking around playfully, just playing with the animals, just hanging out, this kind of very passive sort of existence. But what the Bible tells us is that the Garden of Eden was a place of work, that the Lord God put the man there, to work it and take care of it. Work is not something that happened after the fall. Work is not something that's a result of the curse. Work is part of our humanity, and work is something that we were put here to do. God created human beings, and then he commissioned them as his vice rulers, as his vice creators, as his vice workers, and he said, go. He wanted them to extend his loving rule throughout creation. He wanted them to take the Garden of Eden and extend it, to to cultivate it, to work the land, to be fruitful and multiply. And God's intention was that as human beings, as they had kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, that they would fill and populate the earth and they would take all the beauty of Eden and the beautiful relationships within Eden and that they would just extend that out so that it covered the earth. This is the picture we get at the beginning of the biblical story. This is so critical, that God creates a world that is very, very good but it's not complete. That's important. God creates a world that is good, but it's not complete. That that doesn't mean that God is something less than perfect. It doesn't mean that he's created something sinful in the beginning. It means that he deliberately created a world that is not yet complete. Why? Because he wanted to enlist us as his vice creators and vice rulers to extend out Eden so that it would cover the whole earth. This was God's intention, that that human beings would take Eden and that it would become the whole world. And that's a project that he invited us into so that human flourishing would just continue and environmental flourishing would continue. That was God's intention. That's why human beings are put there, to work and to cultivate the land, to create society, community, industry, and to be in relationship with God and others in a way that leads to human flourishing. 
So that's, that's the first garden, the Garden of Eden, a place where God created human beings and gave them a project, gave them a mission to extend Eden out to the whole earth. But I want to read, you about an, uh, read to you of another garden in Scripture. And this one is a lot further on in the biblical story. It's in Mark chapter 14. And this is Jesus now in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you listen to this, I want you to think about the contrast between the Garden of Eden experience and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just think about this contrast as I read this in Mark 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So here's a picture of Jesus struggling, suffering, anguished in his soul, deeply distressed and troubled. And contrast that with the beauty of the Garden of Eden, the safety, the security, the the health of relationships. There's this massive contrast. And what's happened between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane? What's caused this rift? Sin, right? Sin has entered the biblical story. Sin has entered the human experience and has wrecked havoc on God's good world, and on human beings within God's good world. If you stick with the picture of the garden, it's like God created this beautiful garden of Eden, and sin has wrecked this garden with weeds. Sin is what has grown up and overrun this garden. Weeds that choke out human potential, weeds that lead human beings towards other gods and and selfishness, Weeds and thorns and thistles that stop good things from growing and just lead to a garden that's overrun and overgrown and unhealthy. That's what sin has done in God's world. All because Adam and Eve faced a decision in the beginning and they disobeyed God and in doing so, really what they did is try to be like God. Really, that was the temptation. That's what Satan put in front of them. He said, you will be like God if you do this, if you eat this fruit. That's what they went for. That was the big temptation. They essentially wanted to be like God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Gethsemane, they didn't become atheists. They didn't decide they didn't believe in God anymore. They still believed in Him. They just wanted God on their terms. They just wanted God in their image. They wanted God serving their agenda. They wanted to usurp God and subvert the power structure and the relationship so that they became like God and God became like them. And they could do what they wanted to do and live the way they want to live and be the captain of their own fate, the master of their own soul. That sound vaguely familiar? That's our lives, right? We're all Adam and Eve. That's our reality. We've all done this. We all relate to God on our terms, whether that means ignoring Him or just using Him as some kind of cosmic waiter who we call over when we need Him and don't want Him when we don't want Him. That's how we respond to God most of the time. This is the reality of sin, and it's messed up our relationship with God. It's messed up our relationship with our own selves, our own hearts and minds, and our relationship with each other. So Jesus comes into that world. Jesus comes into this world, this sin-infested, overgrown garden. And in this garden of Gethsemane, he faces essentially the same choice that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. It's like history just comes full circle. And here's Jesus now, the new Adam, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the same choice. Not about fruit, but about obedience and faithfulness. Is he going to follow the path of his own self-indulgence, or is he going to submit himself to the Father? And he answers that with that famous statement, not my will, but yours be done. He makes the choice Adam didn't make. He makes the choice Eve didn't make. He makes the better choice. And that changes everything. That sets humanity on a whole new trajectory. But first, it leads Jesus to the cross. That's the consequence of the decision he made. It was a bold decision to say, not my will, but yours be done. But it resulted less than 24 hours later in his own death on a cross. And we looked at this last week, where Jesus hangs there and absorbs all of our brokenness, all of our sinfulness, all of our mistakes and our regrets and our failures and our stupid things and our following after things that are not God and our self-preoccupations. And he takes that on himself and he bears the weight of it within his own body and all the future stuff that we have yet to do that dishonors God. All of it he took upon himself. All of it he paid for. All of it he suffered the judgment of God for. He took it into his body and he buried it in the tomb. And so we come to Easter Sunday morning. And so we come to John 20. All that's just background to get to John 20. Now, with that in front of you, have a look at this. What, what's interesting about John 20 and this description of Jesus' resurrection is that the story really revolves around Mary Magdalene. I mean, other than Jesus, obviously, who is the central character, Mary is really the prominent figure here. It's not John and Peter. We read about John and Peter, or this other disciple, who's John, probably, running to the tomb, and John just wants us to know, I ran a little bit faster than Peter. I got there He's a bit competitive, you know. He's the half-marathon guy, and John got there first. But really, the story is about Mary. She got to the tomb before they did. She's the first one to proclaim the reality of the resurrection, even though she's confused and frightened and broken. She's the one at the center of the story, other than Jesus, of course. So Mary's standing there at the tomb. And she's, she's confused about why the tomb is empty and where the body's gone. And she's upset and turns around and she sees a person who she thinks is the gardener. Garden theme again. Why does John keep coming back to this? And she says to him, Sir, if you've taken the body, just tell me. Tell me where you've put him. We want to see him. We want to see Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus says to her just one word. He uses her name and says, Mary. There's just such a power in the naming of a person. There's such a weight to that, Mary. And that's the moment of recognition. She sees him. She knows this is Jesus. And she says, Rabboni, teacher. She embraces him. She sees who she, he is. Now, that little incident there where Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener, it's a bit hard to know what to do with that. It's a bit hard to know why John bothered to record that. Why would he let us know that Mary made this mistake? We generally assume it's just an honest mistake. She misidentified the gardener, that Jesus thought he was the gardener. But I want to suggest something that I can't prove. Here, okay, no, no basis to this, but I just want to suggest something for you to think about. You decide whether there's any substance to this or not, okay? I, I wonder whether, what if Mary wasn't mistaken? 
What if Jesus really was the gardener? Or what, what if Jesus wanted to be seen as a gardener in some sense? And what if John, when he's writing all this down later, is kind of nudging us and saying, this was for a reason. This wasn't just a little misidentification. Think about this. This is a clue as to the deep identity of Jesus. Jesus is the gardener, the gardener of God's new creation. There's an old wood carving, a wood etching by an artist called Albrecht Dürer. It's called Jesus the Gardener. And he goes to town on this. I mean, he uses way more imagination, but he presents Jesus like in the full gardener get up. So Jesus has got his gardening boots on here. He's got his, his spade over his shoulder. He's, he's ready to get to work. And he's, he's playing with this image from John 20 of Jesus the gardener. Now, obviously, he's taking liberties with the text. I'm not suggesting Jesus turned up in his gardening boots with his gardening trowel there in front of Mary. We don't know. But what I'm suggesting is that, that little mention of Jesus as a gardener, I think, is a clue as to what John is saying about the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the gardener of God's new world, the gardener of God's new creation. He's bringing about new life here. I mean, you think about it. God created the Garden of Eden and called humanity to take Eden and make it the whole earth. And then sin emerged and the thorns and thistles of sin overran the garden of God. And now here comes Jesus, the gardener. And through his life and especially in his death, he takes all the weeds of sin away. He uproots the weeds, the thorns, the thistles. He takes all of that away, gathers all that. He cleans and tills all of the soil. And then at the resurrection... Jesus plants something new, like the first bud of spring, the first seed of hope and new life in the garden of God. That's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is not just one man walking out of a tomb one Sunday morning. It's not just a miracle that proved Jesus was God. It did all that, but it's far more. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, that was a sign that a new age has come and that the garden of God is finally being renewed that there is new life now, that new creation has begun, that the kingdom is here, that the first blossom of spring has burst forth and summer is on its way. That's resurrection. That's why the resurrection in the New Testament is called the first fruits of the new creation because it's the first of something. It's a foretaste of something much, much greater that's going to come. We'll look at that in a second. But the resurrection is a new beginning, a taste that what God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday, He will one day do for all those who love Him. That's the promise. That's where resurrection points. And the resurrection of Jesus has set in motion an irreversible chain of events that will one day end up with Christ returning and being King over all. That's where the story is going now. So Jesus is the gardener who comes along and He's planted by His own resurrection. He's planted new life in the garden of God's good world. New hope, new faith, new life. And then ever since the resurrection, Jesus has been at work as the gardener, if we can use that image, continuing to till the soil, continuing to uproot any weeds that come through, continuing to deal with despair and brokenness and dysfunction and bring hope and faith and love by the power of his spirit. That's what he's doing in the world today. He's continuing to outwork his resurrection. He's continuing to bring about new creation. And he does that primarily in our lives. Where, where Jesus really wants to get to work as a gardener is in our lives. The garden is not just out there 
we're not just talking about the world. The garden that Jesus is focused on primarily is our lives. And what he longs to do, what he desires to do, is to come and uproot the weeds of selfishness, uproot the weeds of sin, uproot the weeds of dysfunction and idolatry in our lives, and plant new faith, and reconcile us to God, bring us into relationship with God, and then anchor in that relationship to help us to grow, to help us to grow as fruitful trees planted in the garden of God. That's Jesus' desire as a gardener, to garden our lives by reconciling us to God. And all this leads us to the final garden. And we've hinted at it, but let me now read you a description of it. In Revelation chapter 22. This is right at the end of the story. So now, here's a picture of the day Jesus returns and God makes all things new, renews this world, and completes the project that he begun in Genesis 1. Brings it all to a conclusion. And as I read this in Revelation 22, I want you to think about some of the connections between this picture and the Garden of Eden. Think about what the Garden of Eden was like and see if you can hear the echoes here in Revelation 22 when everything's finally restored. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Man, as I read that, I'm thinking about some situations of real suffering in our church at the moment. And in particular, two families that have lost babies even before they were born. Two stillborn babies. And you read this. This is where the hope is. This is, this is what difference our faith makes, that one day God is going to renew and restore what's been stolen from us. That one day, you know, death does not have the final word. But life does. God does. One day this is going to be a reality where there's going to be no more death, mourning, crying, pain, no more sin, no more brokenness, no more babies that don't even make it to birth. None of that. But there will be life and there will be wholeness and there's going to be healing. And in the middle of it all, there's going to be God, glorious creator, glorious redeemer. He is the one who our new creation is all about. But when you feel the suffering of this world, it pulls your heart towards this. Then this stops being just an abstract verse in the Bible that you read. It starts becoming a reality that's an anchor for your soul. And I know some of you need that this morning. It's amazing reading the first couple of chapters of the Bible and then reading the last couple of chapters of the Bible. And just the, the beautiful symmetry that's there. And you get that sense that in the end, it's a new beginning. In the end, what God is doing is restoring Eden, but it's something better. Because where we finally end up is not just a garden, but a garden city. And it's, it's like God is bringing the best of Eden with all of the creation beauty, together with human flourishing in this urban environment that represents, I think, the best of natural beauty and the best of human beauty all coming together. 
in the new creation. So you have this lush garden, the water, the river of life and trees on every side of the river, but it's a city, it's an urban environment. God loves the city. And one day we're going to be living in the best of all of it. And you see these connections. You've got the tree of life again, just like you had the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Here's the tree of life. But now the tree of life is, is more than one tree. It's all down the side of the river, on both sides of the river. And it's bearing so much fruit, even more abundantly than it did in the Garden of Eden. Now there's no more curse of sin. It's finally done away with. Now you don't even need the sun. You don't even need any other light because the Father and the Lamb are the light of the city. Now you don't need any temple or tabernacle or church building because now God is the temple and we are together, the temple with Him, living stones. It's a beautiful picture of new creation and that's where everything's moving and that's because of the resurrection of Jesus. I want you to see that connection. That future has been secured for us by the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It was paid for and it was accomplished there and one day God's got it stored up and he's going to bring the fullness of it about in the new creation. So here we are and, and we live between the garden tomb and the garden city. That's our reality here. We live between the two gardens, the garden tomb of resurrection, the garden city of new creation. And the amazing thing is that Jesus invites us into this garden to bring about new creation with him. Jesus doesn't just do it all, but he wants to bring about tastes of it now. He can't wait to bring about all of new creation in the future. He's already started. He's practicing resurrection now. And he invites us in. He invites us to be co-gardeners with him, to begin bringing faith and hope and life. And Jesus wants to work within your life and he wants to work around you. He wants to unleash the power of his resurrection in your life. And I know some of you are really battling things today and really lacking hope that things can ever be other than what they are. And Jesus, I think, would say to you, the same power that raised me from the dead is at work in your life today. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your situation. So don't be hopeless. Don't be despairing. Resurrection is here, and the power of Christ is at work. Some of you are stuck in cycles of addiction that just don't ever feel like you're going to be able to get out of this. But you need to know that the resurrection of Jesus can break into that cycle and unlock it and break that chain. There is a tremendous power in the resurrection of Christ. Some of you are just feeling utterly hopeless about things that are going on, hopeless about a relationship, like it's just never going to get better, like it's never going to change. You're just going to have to live with this dysfunction. And the resurrection speaks a different word to you. The resurrection says there's hope because there's an empty tomb. Outside of Jerusalem, somewhere, there's an empty tomb. And that makes a difference to your life today. It means there's not hopelessness. There's not and shouldn't be despair. There's always hope because the Spirit's always at work and He's always bringing about new creation. And He wants to break into the hopelessness of your life and start to bring about something new, start to birth something new in you and around you. There's no place for hopelessness because of the resurrection. And Jesus wants to work around you and use you as an agent of new creation, an agent of resurrection in the world. He wants you to be a gardener with him. It was so awesome the other week uh, to see this happen in our church. There's a family in our church who's really struggling. Husband is going through chemo treatment at the moment. 
for cancer and it's understandably put huge strain and pressure on the family and the wife turned up uh, the other Sunday and I don't know whether this was planned or spontaneous or how it worked but as she, as she arrived at church just out there in the courtyard before Kiwi Block a group of women came around her and just prayed with her prayed for her it wasn't part of our regular prayer meeting didn't happen up in the magic chairs just you know it just happened it was fantastic that's the church right that's the church being the church and you know what that is that's resurrection that's another blossom of life breaking through the dry ground in this world of sin and showing that another life is possible another way is possible that's the hope of christ's resurrection right there There's another woman in our church whose car got written off earlier this year and a bunch of you contributed to that Give a Little campaign that went on, raised money for a new car and then we matched that with a donation from the Relief Fund and then two guys in the church went out, went around car yards or whatever and found her just the right car and did all the paperwork, got that sorted, dropped the car off to her. That's fantastic. That's the church being the church but that's also new creation. That's resurrection. That's connected to what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead. That's new life today as an outworking of the resurrection of Jesus. When we do these things, when you pray for someone you know at your work who doesn't know Jesus and you pray for them that God would draw them to himself and plant faith in their heart, you know what you're doing? You're not just being a good Christian. You're not just being a moral person. You are bringing about new creation. You're participating in the garden of God and planting something, planting something new in place of the weeds. When you serve someone in some way, Encourage them. Send a text. Send a Facebook post. Send a card. Give them a call. And you encourage someone who's battling and struggling. You are bringing about new creation. That's new creation right there. That's the power of the resurrection popping up today, just as it did 2,000 years ago. When you bless someone in some way, when you sit with someone who's struggling and you just sit with them in their grief and in their loss and you don't try to fix it, but you just be present with them, you're bringing about new creation. Right there in that living room over a cup of tea, there's a taste of God's new world breaking into the present. A taste of Revelation 22 taking shape in an ordinary living room because you choose to follow Jesus and you choose to show faith, hope and love to someone else. You're bringing about resurrection. That's how the resurrection is playing out in the world around you. I just want you to think about are there ways in which God's at work? Are there ways, are there ordinary, this is just everyday stuff, I don't necessarily mean extraordinary big acts, I just mean are there people around you that God is putting it on your heart and prompting you and saying, I want you to bring about a little piece of new creation here. I want you to practice resurrection in the world. I want you to bless that person. I want you to have some more hope for this relationship and have another go and stay in it and talk. I want you to address this area of dysfunction in your life. I want you to address this this habit. I want you to know that my power is greater than the power of sin that's entangling you right now because of the resurrection. I want you to reach out to that person in need. I want you to be generous to that person. I want you to be hospitable to this person. I want you to have them into your home. What's God putting on your heart? Are you willing to open up to that? It's a dangerous thing. Are you willing to open up to that and ask God, what's the new creation look like for me? What does resurrection look like in my life and around me? What does it look like in my family? What does it look like in my workplace? What are you doing today that's a continuation of the resurrection 2,000 years ago? What are you wanting to do today that's a little glimpse and a taste of the final restoration of all things? This is where we live, guys, between the garden tomb and the garden city. And Jesus is inviting us now to be part of it.
to be part of this whole thing as it rolls forward. New creation, resurrection. So we're going to take communion. And uh, we do this every week, and I just want to invite you to open up some space during this time to ask a few questions. Here they are. I want you to ask, what can I be thankful for that God is doing in my life that's an expression of resurrection? What do I have to be grateful for? Ultimately, we're looking back to the cross and being grateful for that. But what do we have to be grateful for that God is doing? Where's the new life that you can see? Where's the hope? Where's the love? Where's the faith? What can you be thankful for? And then I want you to allow your mind not just to go back to celebrating what Jesus has done, but also going forward to new creation. Because even when Jesus gave us these elements and instituted this meal, he said, as he gave his disciples the bread and the wine, he said, I'm not going to eat this and drink this with you again until we eat it anew in the kingdom of God. When this finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God, that's the next time we're going to be sharing these emblems. And every time we take communion, it's one less time till Jesus returns. And this meal and this ceremony should pull our hearts forward to new creation as much as they should pull our hearts backwards to the cross and the empty tomb. So I want you to allow your heart to go in both directions, to be grateful and thankful for what Christ has done and what he's doing, and then to allow your heart to just hope and long for that new creation. And then thirdly, to ask in the quietness as you take these emblems, out of the grace God's given you, what would he have you do? Is there a practical and honest step that he would have you take towards someone or towards an issue in your life that would be an expression of new creation, that would be planting something fresh in the garden of God, that would be pulling out some of the weeds that have grown up in your life or in a relationship? What would he have you do? Is there someone to serve? Is there someone to bless? Is there something to deal with? Is there something to address, someone to talk to about this? I want to ask you to open up your heart to that and just allow God to press. If he wants to speak, let him speak. And just put yourself in a posture of openness to it. He takes these times. He uses these times. Times when we're still, times when we're quiet, and often times when we're together. So let's be open to that and let's celebrate the garden of God and what he's doing. Let's pray. We'll prepare ourselves for this time. Jesus, we, we picture in our mind that scene on the first Easter Sunday, when, when you stood there before Mary and you spoke her name and she saw you. And Jesus, we want to pray this morning that we would hear you speak our name and that we'd hear you address us, not just by the name our parents gave us, but by the name that you give us, beloved, children chosen, precious, blessed. We want to hear your name for us, spoken over our lives. And I pray that in that moment, we would see you like Mary saw you on that morning. We'd see you with fresh eyes. We'd see what you are doing with fresh eyes. We're so blind to it, Jesus. Just so distracted by everything else going on in our lives. But today and now we pray for the eyes to see, to see your resurrection, and to see what you're doing now that's bringing about new life, and to see the new life that you're wanting to bring about and asking us to be a part of. Help us not to push it away, help us not to ignore it, help us to step into it, give us the courage to respond. God, if there's something that you place on the minds and hearts, of people here in the next couple of minutes. I pray that you'd equip us with the strength to respond to that.
and not shy away. Help us to step into this new creation. And thank you, God, that really at best, we're just your co-gardeners. You're the gardener. You're the Lord of the harvest. It's your work. It's your new creation. Thank you that you, in your mercy, have invited us into what you are doing. So we open up our hearts, God. That's really all we can do is just open up our lives and we just ask you to speak, to work and to move, to change us and transform us, and more than anything, to speak our name that we might see you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.